This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Lung Science Podcast. My name is Andrea Yu, and I am an assistant professor from Duke University. And with me um, to discuss everything you wanted to know about flow cytometry, but were afraid to ask, is Dr. Robert Tai, who is an assistant professor also from Duke University. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good, thank you for doing the podcast today. Um, how did you get interested in flow cytometry? So I got started with flow cytometry um, based on very early work in the lab. Uh, I was at the time uh, had started in uh, Dr. Paul Noble's lab. Uh, and at that point, uh, when we were discussing potential research projects, uh, one of the things that, was, that uh, Paul had expressed that really needed to be worked on was this idea of trying to understand macrophage function in pulmonary fibrosis. And in particular, we were interested in how macrophages could get modified during, during the course of pulmonary fibrosis. So that's where I had started. And the, not, the technique that at the time was coming of, available more and more in pulmonary research was the use of flow cytometry. And it, in point of fact, had to do in part with the machine that was bought by Paul's lab when they arrived at Duke University. Uh, and so that's how I got started. Ultimately, it expanded further by interactions with other collaborators at Duke at the time. I came into contact uh, with a guy named Michael D. Gunn, uh, and his lab at the time, uh, which was focused, uh, he was a cardiologist, uh, but was focused on models of lung injury and repair, and specifically myeloid cells in that setting. Uh, had started to develop some techniques with flow cytometry of actually being able to define immune cells and with a particular focus on macrophages in the lung. And so I spent about a year in his lab learning the techniques that they did, and that uh, also heavily used flow cytometry. So you can kind of see where that became something that was really central to what I started to do. And one of the things that became interesting about that was the ability to use that technology particularly by identifying uh, different subsets of macrophages. And in fact, the, the first paper that I ever published uh, in the, uh, the Red Journal was in fact a publication being able to define uh, different macrophage subpopulations in the lung, specifically those that were resident derived versus those that uh, appeared to be recruited in the setting of inflammation related to bleomycin allowed me to start to think in a more broad sense of, of how macrophages and what flow cytometry could offer about defining individual macrophage functions. And that's led to a series of other studies, both in environmental pollutant models, and then ultimately work with my moderator and colleague here, Andrea, uh, focused on defining those different immune cells using flow cytometry in the human lung. And so there's a tr tremendous potential to do that. And, and I think what we've developed over time is really a focus that initially started on trying to assign specific functions based on surface receptor expression. But over time, we've mostly ended up trying to get a better idea of defining macrophages by flow cytometry 
and based on sort of their location or, uh, or in part their ontogeny. And so I think that's how I've gotten into flow cytometry as a scientific field. Well, that's, that's really um, exciting and interesting. And what, is, what are the major considerations when you're designing an experiment um, prior to even do a flow experiment? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think that's something that I've learned by a lot of trial and error in my own career. Uh, and then also a lot of interaction with other investigators over time. And I think the most important thing that I've found about when, what you're considering for your study design in flow cytometry is really what's your question. I think there can be a tendency with, with techniques that allow you to answer multiple questions to try to answer all questions at one time. And the, the consequence of that is that, you know, you don't really design the experiment in a way that answers a specific question. You tend to sort of just do it and then see what happens. And I think that most of the experiments that I've ever seen with flow cytometry, where it's a do it and see what happens, tend to have a lot of issues because you can't really do everything with the technology no matter how many different types of fluorochromes that we can use in experiments, it's still ultimately at the end of the day can't answer every question. And so I think that's um, a really important thing. And one of the things that I know I hear a lot from people when they come and talk to me at times is sort of this idea that I'm just gonna do some flow on some cells and that'll sort of answer my question. And, and I think that's, a, that's something that I would caution people not to try. Uh, some other considerations, I think you have to think about the sources of your samples. You know, are you really focused around bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and the cells from that? Are you focused on tissue? Are you looking at blood? Uh, each of these have considerations um, and different methods of processing. And so there are things you might do for uh, a blood sample that you're going to not do for a tissue sample. You know, I think the and the processing that's involved in that will actually, in some cases, be things that you need to test out to make sure that you're handling the cells in the appropriate way so that you're able to get reproducible results and, again, answer the question that you have in the beginning. I think that, in particular, this should all go in part before you get to the process of panel design, which is sort of the next major point of consideration. And it got to go, again, the panel has to go back to what's your question because no panel is going to be a one-size-fits-all panel. It just doesn't happen that way. It's got to be designed to answer the specific question that you have. It can always be adapted later on to ask different questions, but it's, it's really critical to figure out in the beginning. Any panel you design needs to fit within the capabilities you have. And those capabilities include things like what's the capability of the flow cytometer that you have. So really understanding the machine that you're going to use because those are, again, not one size fits all. They have different configurations, different uses of lasers. And even if you might think that it's using one fluorochrome attached to an antibody in one machine, it's gonna look the exact same thing in a, in a second machine. It's not always the case in that setting. And there are a variety of different reasons that that could be the case. And so you have to consider the capabilities of the machine. You have to consider the capabilities of the antibodies that you wanna use. So not all antibodies have a fluorochromes that are always attached to them uh, in the channels that you want to use. Um, some of them can be conjugated later on, but there are limitations based on the availability of antibodies. And in particular, we typically try to focus on conjugated antibodies um, to make the panel designs uh, simpler. 
but it is a consideration. And then I think the most important thing that we've learned over time is that you have to test everything out. It is not simple enough to just say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab some cells from somebody, throw a bunch of antibodies on it, throw it through a machine, and voila, out will publish uh, something in science or nature. That a lot of the work that goes into panel design and development really requires a lot of testing. It requires knowing the antibodies, learning the concentrations of the antibodies that you're interested in, and then testing it out in, in larger panels to really develop something that's robust and reproducible. So I think those are some of the major considerations we have uh, in designing studies for flow cytometry. There are certainly other ones um, that, that need to be considered as well. So what I'm hearing is that it's very important to know the question that you want to ask and address and plan ahead and know the capacity and the forecrums that you want to use and test them out before we start, before you plan to start an experiment. Absolutely. And I think the other part I would add to that as you were talking about it is that, you know, ask for help. I, I know that a lot of us that, that work on flow cytometry in our own careers um, are really willing and ready to help other investigators to try to help address their questions. Uh, and most places now also have facilities that um, really perform some, some of these services. It should be something that's a collaborative experience because I, I will point out that if you just plan for the facility to do everything, the likelihood of you getting an answer to your question is not nearly as high as when it's a collaborative experience of using your, your own knowledge as an investigator with the expertise of a core facility. Those are very good um, advice. Then what do you um, consider some specific challenges using flow cytometry to study lung diseases? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, you know, I mean, I think as a lot of us who are pulmonary researchers know, the lung is a pretty complicated organ, um, which offers a lot of advantages in terms of really being able to discover new things and really work on critical lung diseases. But as a lot of us know, the lung is, can be finicky, and that's also true with performing flow cytometry on the lung. And so there are several issues that are sort of unique challenges to flow cytometry within the lung. Uh, so I think the first of those is, is um, and is a really central issue, is, is how we handle tissue samples and their processing. There are obviously a lot of ways to digest lung tissue. Uh, lung tissue is a bit complicated because it does have, um, it does have airspace as well. Um, and there's a lot of potential to overdigest your tissues, uh, leading to uh, a lot of debris and dead cells. And even though you might be able to try to run flow cytometry on debris and dead cells, it's not something I would recommend unless you're really interested into, in, in understanding debris and dead cells. But tissue processing is a major hurdle. Uh, and there are, um, there are techniques that have been developed that have, been, that have tried to make this more standardized. Some that use mechanical methods, uh, others that use enzymatic methods, uh, or combinations of both. Each method has its pluses and minuses. Mechanical digestion, it sometimes can be quite harsh. Um, it's possible for enzymatic di digestion to actually, in addition to uh, um, liberating cells um, from tissue structures, can also alter the surface uh, characteristics of various antibodies, and so that's a consideration. And so I think the most important thing is to really test this out early, early on in your, in your determination of how you're going to go about this. 
Um, there are several good papers that exist on, on discussing different methods of tissue digestion within the lung. Um, it was highlighted in a recent workshop report that a group of us put together for, um, for the Red Journal. So I'd encourage people to, to actually look into those and most importantly, test it out. And by testing it out, what I mean is perform the digestion, figure out how many cells you're actually getting out of that, out of those samples, consider how, how much viability you have by using a viability dye, and then really understand what you're, what you're getting because your digestion will matter significantly. And making sure too, that if you're interested in a specific cell type, that the digestion is modified for that specific cell type because there are certain cells uh, that are gonna tolerate a certain types of digestion differently. Uh, and so if you're interested in a specific cell type, that's something you have to consider. I think the other thing as a related point to that is that there are tissue debris and dead cells exist a lot in, in lung samples. Uh, even if that's from just regular bronchoalveolar lavage samples, particularly if it's coming from a human subject. And so, you know, consideration of tissue debris and dead cells needs to be a priority in the analysis of flow cytometry, um, mostly because it will lead to artifactual observations. Um, and so one of the recommendations that we have, and certainly something we do in all of our samples, is have some way to make sure that the cells that we're looking at are in fact viable cells. And that would be using a viability dye, which should be required in almost any flow cytometry panel. Um, another major issue is autofluorescence, and that's particularly of alveolar macrophages, though it does exist for other cell types within the lung, and it's sort of a thing that's somewhat universal across. You know, the most common question that I get asked is, how do we get rid of autofluorescence? I think that's sort of a misnomer. There is no way to completely get rid of autofluorescence. Um, it is a feature of, of the cells that we uh, uh, look at in the lung. Um, it is something that I think we handle in general by understanding the characteristics of the cells that we're interested in looking at and making sure that we're designing it in a way that we can allow the autofluorescence to be a part of the, uh, a part of the process um, and accommodate for it. Uh, it becomes particularly important when you're looking at uh, subtle shifts in uh, surface, surface markers, uh, particularly in injury or other models uh, where there's an insult because autofluorescence can in fact increase in the setting of injury responses. So it does need to be considered. It's not something you can get rid of. It's just something you have to learn about the cells that you're interested in. Uh, the last part is thinking about the lung because it is it's not completely unique, but it does have some unique characteristics because there is both a uh, intravascular, intraalveolar, and then interparenchymal cells and how to specifically define those. Now, interalveolar, we do that principally through, through lavage and other techniques to sample the airways. Interparenchymal versus intravascular can be a bit of a trick. There have been some uh, efforts to try to do that with sort of with trying to label the, um, the intravascular cells um, prior to digestion, but it is a consideration you have to put in. And in particular, that can be a problem with thinking about things like neutrophils in the lung, particularly from digests, as neutrophils tend to hang out in, uh, in the vasculature within the lung. And so it can be a hard measure to measure the amount of neutrophils in the lung tissue um, from samples at times. So those are some of the specific challenges um, that we think about in terms of flow cytometry within the lung. So those are really good points. Do you think that we should interpret data 
with um with those points that you mentioned in mind. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the, the things that's hard about reproducibility of flow cytometry. And and uh, I know that, you know, as all, all of us look at literature and try to figure out how do we get to a point that we can uh, do somebody else's experiment in our own hands, that it really needs to incorporate a lot of these understandings that people have learned um, about their flow cytometry. And it's really critical that it needs to be done uh, in a way that is, is accurate because obviously there is a lot of potential here for false readings, uh, inappropriate interpretations, which sometimes are unaware from the individual investigator, but really then have to do more with things like tissue digestion, autofluorescence, intravascular versus intraparenchymal cells. Uh, and so one of the onus is on the, on the com community of pulmonary researchers is to try to uh, to the best of our ability is try to standardize these methods and then make sure that what we're doing is something that's adequately reflected in our papers uh, and publications so that so that what we're showing is something that somebody else could reproduce in a different in a different lab setting. So I think those are really important issues. Flow cytometry being used to isolate cells. There are other methods such as columns um, that's been used for cell isolation What's the pros and cons of using flow versus other methods for isolating specific subpopulation of cells? Yeah, Andrea, that's a good point. Um, I, think, I think, again, it would go back to one of the central things that I've talked about, which is the idea that you need to know, ask what your question is. And so depending on your question, some of these different techniques may be things that are important for you. So let me go through a couple of the things that I think about in terms of specifically columns versus uh, flow cytometry sorting. So columns are obviously uh, higher throughput, so uh, larger samples uh, where you have a lot of sample to go through something to try to separate out individual cells. The columns have an advantage because they can be done in a higher throughput setting, uh, as opposed to flow cytometry sorting, which really requires single cells to travel through the cytometer and then be selected uh, based on their surface characteristics, uh, which can take a lot more time. So obviously the, the difference there, in addition, is sort of a cost perspective, is that you know, columns uh, tend to be less costly for the amount of sample that you're running through the column, as opposed to sorting time for flow cytometers, uh, which can be expensive, uh, particularly if it's per, for prolonged periods of time. Um, obviously, flow cytometer sorters are more technical, so they tend to involve uh, core facilities. Uh, and if, if not a core facility, certainly uh, users with a lot of experience, because there's a lot of technical challenges that can exist with flow sorters that can ruin your experiment if it's not done appropriately. And columns tend to be a little less technical, more well-established. Um, I think then the, the point of it, it also as well is as a higher throughput thing, the yield per sample is actually quite a bit lower. So for the amount of sample that you're putting in, your yield for what cells you want to select tends to be lower and the purity tends to be lower. Alternatively, flow sorting will have um, higher yield per the actual sample and a greater level of purity. So it, again, it depends on what the, what the goal of the experiment. If it's more of a bulk, I need to get enough cell, I need to get tons of cells to do X, Y, and Z, then that may be something that's fitting for a column. Whereas from the standpoint of 
flow cytometry, if it's, I really need to know exactly what cell this is and how specific it is, then you might be doing something with facts. Now, I think there's some unique things with more complicated cell types. So the more detailed your cell type is, the more antibodies that need to be used to define that, um, that cell type. Those are not gonna be things that are gonna be super useful for columns because columns tend to focus on, on a lim limited number of surface characteristics. Whereas flow cytometry sorting is, is much more capable of handling subtle cell populations that, that might exist. And so the last part I will raise is particularly with phagocytic cells is that phagocytic cells tend to stick more likely to columns and are harder to get off. Uh, that has a twofold effect. One, it can, uh, if you're sorting for non-phagocytic cells and then trying to separate from phagocytic cells, that can be an issue uh, because your column is likely to be contaminated with phagocytic cells. So those are all considerations that I would have for columns versus flow cytometry sorting. And so I think it just depends again, uh, principally on, on what the experiment that you're designing is and what's the, really what's the requirement for the purity versus the volume of, of sample that you've got. Yeah, they certainly have experience with not being able to um, get macrophage out of the columns. And that certainly is a challenge where um, flow cytometry can have certain advantage to isolating phagocytic cells. So what do you anticipate are the major advances coming in the next five, 10 years for flow cytometry? Yeah, so I think there's been obviously a lot more um, users using flow cytometry at, a high, at increasingly higher levels. And then I think there has also been an explosion in, of technology um, that has sort of added to the world of flow cytometry. Uh, that includes like, things like uh, CYTOF uh, uh, and even single cell sequencing. And so I think there is um, going to be a lot of advances um, coming in the, next, uh, in the next five to 10 years. Some things that I sort of highlight, um, uh, there more recently has been the development of spectral cytometers. Um, the advantage of spectral cytometers uh, is that it gets away from sort of, it allows a use of the greater spectrum of light that's admitted by um, individual fluorochromes, uh, which facilitates greater use of a variety of antibodies that would normally not be used together uh, due to their potential for overlap. Uh, so I think that's an exciting new technology that is uh, gradually coming out on the market um, and will also start to come out on the market in terms of the use for sorting. I know that there's been a lot of interest in, in uh, CYTOF, uh, CYTOF being the ability to get away from uh, um, uh, fluorochromes with, um, with excitation admission characteristics that may have overlapping sequences and focusing instead on using metals and using the metals uh, with a magnet to try to separate populations. And I think that's certainly something that's become use more routinely. Uh, I'm not entirely clear personally uh, in the future um, uh, with the use of single cell technology and its increasingly frequent use, um, whether, the, whether CYTOF will uh, manage the test of time, in particular because with CYTOF you really lose the cells, so there's never going to be a way that CYTOF can be adapted 
um, for sorting of individual cell populations and doing functional studies on those cell populations. Um, but nonetheless, it's a very, it's a technology that exists that I think um, will probably have some additional use over the next several years. Um, I think the big one is this sort of single cell versus flow cytometry. And I think um, they're increasing use and as the cost of sequencing goes down, more and more individuals are using um, single cell technology to identify sub subclusters of, of cells that exist. Um, I think that actually is a pretty exciting uh, thing for trying to work on integrating uh, sequencing technology with flow cytometry um, to not only characterize sort of what gene expression is, but also understand um, protein expression and surface expression and try to clarify individual cell populations. And then also uh, at some level, maybe some ability to actually be able to uh, sort some of those individual cells. So I think there's certainly a lot of potential going forward of thinking of, of merging technologies of sequencing uh, with flow cytometry. And then the last part, I think, that's um, still in its somewhat of its infancy, but has um, certainly become uh, more prominent, are, are trying to provide ways that there is more auto automation of the analysis that exists with flow cytometry. And we haven't discussed it as much in this, but, but analysis of flow cytometry is very labor intensive. Um, it's very, uh, it's potentially very fraught with uh, ways to uh, as I would call it, go down the rabbit hole, um, where you start chasing um, random assortions of cells based on surface markers, and then you're not exactly sure what you're really finding in the end. Um, but it is a very labor-intensive thing. So automated technologies that use, that do this in a, in a um, more unbiased fashion really allow the potential for us to think about um, taking some of the analysis out of I'm picking this various thing and then trying to find what I want to find to actually trying to see what the data shows as a whole. It's certainly in development. Um, I think it's something that will hopefully get better. It needs to be, uh, to a larger extent, validated against sort of standard measures of the ways that we look at cells. Um, it's still ultimately to an extent predicated on things that we've learned from flow cytometry. So I think as automated methods get more sophisticated, importing the data that we already know about what we know about surface characteristics of cells will be important to make those analyses more robust. That's really good points. What do you think about this discussion about single cell analysis replacing flow cytometry? Do you think that's a potential upcoming advances? Yeah, I think, um, I think regardless at the, um, I guess I would have two comments on that. So one is, um, uh, I think there will always be a use for flow cytometry from the standpoint of actually being able to, from a scientific perspective, select out a cell of interest um, and really be able to uh, explore the functions of that cell of interest uh, and to figure out ways that cells interact, um, which computationally may be possible to an extent with single cell, but in, in terms of actual actually proving those interactions, I think that will still require the ability to extract that cell from a tissue and then be able to analyze that. Um, so, and then the second part of that is I think that from the standpoint of higher throughput analyses, that flow cytometry still offers 
um, tremendous capability to immunophenotype individual groups of individuals, human, mouse, otherwise, uh, in, a, in a higher capability method than, than the single cell, which is always going to still remain to be fairly expensive and labor intensive in terms of the data analysis uh, and understanding what the sequencing means. So I think there's still always going to be a role for if you need to phenotype an animal for an immune response, that there's still going to be a very vital role for flow cytometry of being able to do that both in mouse and humans. There will still ultimately be a role for the single cell uh, to really define rare populations, to define some of the underlying potential programs that are activated in, in rare populations, but I don't think it'll ever completely replace flow cytometry. And ultimately, I still think that those technologies, in my hope, would be that they, they integrate over time, because I think that there's a lot we could learn uh, in those kind of settings. There's also, and that's a really good point, um, there's also technology that becoming more available, such as SciSeq or TotalSeq, that integrates um, TAC antibody that allow proteomic analysis and um, RNA transcriptomic data. How do you think those um, relate to flow cytometry and how they compare to one another? Yeah, and I think um, it's a good point and sort of the sky's the limit. And I don't think at this point we really have a good sense of how that's all gonna fall out um, because a lot of those technologies are quite new um, it'll be interesting to see what happens over time. And I think the, I still believe in the end that there will be uh, a value for flow cytometry in addition to all of these techniques at different levels. And so my hope still remains that they end up being integrated over time uh, because I think the robustness of what we'll get information wise out of those combination strategies will really be uh, quite transformative of understanding complex immunologic tissues like the lung. That, that is um, all very good advice and very good point. And well, um, thank you for your advice and your insight into a very important technique that has um, potential to advance our understanding of lung diseases. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the Lung Science Podcast was as always, brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the podcast, please visit ATSJournal, that's one word, or lowercase.org, or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.